This recording was made on Gornu country, McLaren Vale, South Australia. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. G'day legends. G'day legends, really rolls? Really? Did you... <laughs> I can't believe that. I hate being called legend, guys. I can't believe that I've just started this podcast off by greeting you saying, G'day, legends, when I hate being greeted by the words, G'day, legend. So apologies if I've upset anybody. I don't know why I did that. I think, actually, I've just been in the surf and I was thinking about a guy I used to work with who used to greet every single customer going, G'day, legend, how are you? And when someone does that to me, whether it's legend or champion or something. It's just like, when someone says that to me, I'm like, mate, you may as well have just called me a dickhead based off the level of authenticity in that word and how I feel now that you've used it. And so now here we are, and I've just greeted you in the same way. So stupid. I can't believe it. But anyway, we're off and running now. Thanks for listening. Today, friends, we're learning. We're learning stuff. And the stuff we're learning is about biodynamics. Have you heard of that? Do you know what it is? Biodynamics is a specific type of farming and one that I didn't know very much about before contacting Paxton's Biodynamic Wines in the McLaren Vale in South Australia. I wanted to learn more about it in a first-hand way, generally speaking, as I do with most of these podcast episodes where I like to clip a little microphone onto the collar of someone very, very intelligent who can then tell me about something that I'm interested in as an expert talking to a green run beginner novice like myself. And unfortunately, this episode was one where I didn't achieve that. I didn't get that, but what I did get was a five-hour tour of multiple biodynamic vineyards in the McLaren Vale. And so much first-hand knowledge and so much absorption of the concept of biodynamics that I actually, I'm not that upset about it. I feel pretty good about it because I feel like I learned so much about it in a different way than had I just asked back and forth questions from someone sitting in a room compared to actually walking around an operating biodynamic farm and getting to soak it in. And I mean, then there's another step, which is just like typing it into the internet and learning it that way. And I feel really good about the primary way that I access this information. And what it means is this episode is going to be split into two bits. The first bit is me reporting to you on everything that I've learned about biodynamics. And then the second bit is a conversation between me and a bunch of biodynamic winemakers at Paxton's um, sipping some wine and talking about climate change and so forth at the end. So let's dive right into it. I will tell you straight off the bat that this experience was another beautiful example of random generosity. Me having just hit Paxton's up cold off the internet, a stranger off the street saying, oh, hi, um, I just want to know more about biodynamics. Is there someone who can maybe take time to not do other more important things and talk to me instead? And not only did Ben Paxton come back to me and say, yeah, sure, man, absolutely no worries. He then proceeded to drive me around his entire estate in the McLaren Vale and teach me about it one-to-one. So I'm extremely thankful for the amount of time that I got from this man and information that I got to learn at the same time. 
And it was delightfully well-timed, this experience, because I've been talking a lot on podcasts and in videos about the atmosphere around certain special pieces of land. Being very dense is the word that I most often jump to or most often just appears in the forefront of my brain as a description of this extrasensory feeling that you get when you're in some really special piece of earth. And typically that's been national parks. And I think if you just think to your favorite national park, I'm sure what I'm waffling through trying to describe here will resonate in some capacity. But this thing that I've noticed is that it's the same feeling as when I'm on an agricultural piece of land that someone has been pouring energy into. Which meant that walking around Paxton's, as a great example of that, gave me the opportunity to absorb this feeling and observe it over an extended period of time whilst having it quantified by Ben Paxton walking right next to me and pointing out every single tiny detail of his vines and the infinite nuances with which they grow. I didn't know much about biodynamics going into this. Actually, no, that's a bald-faced lie. I knew next to nothing about biodynamics. And I'd like to say that that was intentional because I wanted to learn about it in a first-hand manner. But really, it could be argued that it was just incredibly poor journalistic ethics from me. But either way, I started out with only a very vague definition of what biodynamic farming meant. And I knew that it meant that the agriculture had to contribute to the land and not do anything that would modify or damage the ecosystem balance. And I also knew that there was a label. I knew that you couldn't just use the word biodynamic on a piece of packaging willy-nilly without certification. And that's actually probably where and why my education stopped because back when I encountered biodynamics for the first time, I only researched so far as to find what I was looking for which is confirmation that it's a beacon of an ethically sound product to try and look for as a consumer. And so I found out that if I see the word biodynamic on a piece of packaging, it's a really good indication that it is an environmentally sound product for me to buy. And in theory meant that I had to read the rest of that packaging a little less closely and I could go off and do other things like live my life, when in reality, I still read packaging like a complete dork in the supermarket. I just can't help it. It's impossible for me not to buy something without reading pretty much every single word on the packaging. I swear the supermarket is more a reading exercise for me than it is a hunger exercise. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked because it turns out that biodynamics is way, way more interesting than what I thought it was. So from meeting Ben and then going off and doing my own research, I have discovered that biodynamics is a set of agricultural principles developed by a super duper progressive European bloke called Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s. And I found out that it's actually been quite divisive, which surprised me straight away because I had assumed that biodynamics was going to be a pursuit that was universally acknowledged by scientists and everything. Not to say scientists aren't into it. Some scientists are. But from the stuff that Ben Paxton taught me and from the stuff that I went off to read on the internet, I found out that biodynamics is actually written off by some people as hippie nonsense as well. 
because the whole idea of biodynamics is about holistic ecosystem health, but it integrates traditional organic growing practices with what feels like some really off the deep end, far left field type ideas, like cosmic ideas, literally things like the lunar calendar and constellations and combining specific organs of specific animals with specific other things and then burying them in specific places for specific amounts of time at specific positions of the moon during its cycle. And it's this kind of stuff that to a lot of people straight away just closes the door to biodynamics and people just write it off as hocus pocus. And I'm smiling thinking back to how I learned this because it is such a nice memory. Because you know how you can either learn something by reading it on the internet or reading it in a book or something? It's very different to having someone tell it to you, especially someone who is an expert in the field. And for me, this was Ben Paxton standing in a 150-year-old stone shed at the Paxton's estate. It's dimly lit. On the walls next to me are all of these differently sized glass jars full of leaves, insects, different things and colors all fermenting. He and I are surrounded by dusty wine barrels and he's looking me in the eye, reaching out with a cow horn, telling me about biodynamic preparations that go down in this shed. And dead set, for a good five minutes, not five seconds or 50 seconds, but like five full minutes, I thought he was taking the piss. Genuinely, I did. And I really embarrassed myself in thinking that because I, it wasn't just he and I there. Ben and Dwayne and Jack will all attest to the fact that I was standing there with eyes like bloody overcoat buttons, listening to the things he was saying, thinking like, hold on, have we just walked onto the set of the mythical eighth Harry Potter film or something? What the bloody hell are you talking about? But he was dead serious telling me about alchemy that goes on in that shed and then how they spread it out over the farm and what they do with it at certain times of the year to a point where I really thought he was just having me on because it was such a departure from what I thought biodynamics was, which is this very scientifically measurable thing. Actually, no, but now I've said that, it is that, but it's also just this other stuff. And so that's why I'm smiling because, I mean, I wish I had recorded that experience because it probably would have made for some great listening. But all the same, I love just having the memory of having found out through that situation that there was so much more to biodynamics than I realized considering that I could have just punched it into the internet and then read it off a screen and consumed the information that way. I'm so glad that it was the opposite because these preparations are no joke. There's two main ones that are stipulated by the biodynamic certifier and they're called Preparation 500 and Preparation 501. And I'm not going to go into too many details about these preparations. There's going to be a couple of links in the description of this episode that you can click through to educate yourself a little bit more about them if you're so inclined. 500 and 501 are basically cow horns filled up with certain things and then buried in the ground for about six months at a time. Preparation 500 is filled up with cow manure, preferably from a lactating dairy cow and then buried in the ground. And then when you dig it up, as Ben showed me, that manure has just turned into this beautiful, humusy, rich, 
like soil turbocharger and that either goes in compost or as a direct fertilizer i'm not 100 percent sure preparation 501 is similar but it's packed with silica from finely ground quartz as a means of trying to absorb and redistribute more light throughout the soil for microbial photosynthesis I'm going to read, I'll read out this list that I've got of preparation 500 through 508, just to give you an idea of the contents of these things. So 500, cow manure packed into a cow's horn. 501, silica from finely ground quartz mixed with rainwater packed into a cow's horn. 502, yarrow flower heads packed into a stag's bladder. Yep, a stag's bladder. 503, chamomile flower heads fermented in soil. 504, stinging nettle tea. 505, oak bark packed into the skull of a domestic animal. 506, dandelion flower heads. 507, valerian extract. 508, horsetail, and the list goes on. But don't you just feel like I just read out the ingredients list of some potion in Professor Snape's dungeon? This is what I've come to absolutely love about biodynamics is... These preparations perform this beautiful dance between horticultural science and astrological conjecture. And I'm sure I've offended some astrologists out there by calling their work conjecture. But I'm sorry, guys and girls, but astrology and constellations and their impact on Earth are a lot harder to measure than calcium and nitrogen in soil that horticulturalists can easily measure. Do you know what I mean? Take Preparation 500, and this is from a website that I'll include in the the description. So BD500 specifically stimulates calcium and nitrogen relationships to foster abundant and balanced life in the soil. It is also needing to be buried in autumn on a root day with a descending moon. And there's reasons for that. Biodynamic agriculture has a keen focus on tuning into the natural rhythms of the earth and the cosmos. Once a year, the planet takes a deep breath in, in autumn, as everything goes to ground and slowly into winter dormancy. Spring is the time of the seasonal exhalation, often seen and described by us as a burst of life. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Is that these preparations do stuff that definitely helps the soil and the plants in a very scientifically substantiated way, but then they also do it in complete respect to, shall I say, less scientifically credible things. Things that are certainly less well known or widely discussed. Ben was really straight up with me about all this stuff as well. Because you look at the bloke, there's no dreadlocks, he's not wearing any weird and wonderful bohemian jewellery, he doesn't look like a stoner, like he's just a normal salt-of-the-earth farmer bloke. But he's talking about these very deeply agro-spiritual practices, and he was really straight up with me, saying that he knows some stuff about Rudolf Steiner's instructions seem completely weird, or even downright inexplicable, but he does them, and he's done them enough to know that they work, and that it works well enough that he is unwilling to do any less in case it disrupts the alchemy. As in, yes, he'll bury the horns and bury all of the other stuff, (laughs) but he won't not use some obscure plant extract because who knows whether that will mean the other stuff won't work. 
And I can tell you that the quality and the cleanliness of the flavors in the wine speak for themselves. And if I was in his position, I'd be the exact same thinking, okay, I don't want to mess with this. It obviously works. I'm not going to stop doing any part of it. So here's the impression that this entire experience has left me with of biodynamic certification. For me, it seems like the closest thing that we have to a modern day spiritual contract between farmer and earth. And where else do you find that? Because organic certification is one thing, but biodynamic certification is a whole next level. No, it's a whole next 100,000 levels of connection with the earth because you could automate a fair degree of organic farming. I'm not a farmer, but I know that you could scale up production in an organic manner. But there's no shortcuts to any of this biodynamic stuff. It is very reliant on direct input from humans into the ground. There's no way around the direct level of input that needs to go into all of these preparations. And the answer that I've come to with where else you find this on earth in 2020, and it's in indigenous farming practices, whether it's Aboriginal agriculture in Australia or whether it's Amazonian agriculture in Brazil. I mean, in indigenous cultures, biodynamics is inherent because there is an inherent understanding of the entire ecosystem's health as the one priority, not just maximizing the yield of one specific component of that ecosystem. Another impression that biodynamics has left me with is that it's a slightly disconcerting idea for vegans. And I feel like it kind of punctures the vegan ideology. It uses some animal products, yes, but most of them are abattoir byproducts and all of them are to prevent chemical ecosystem interference. So I don't really understand how you could push back against that from a vegan ethos standpoint. Um, ben actually showed me, I've just remembered, one preparation, which was in a tiny jar full of tiny dried up insects. And he said that after a certain period of aging, he'll crush them up. And I think they then get it's like vulcanized or something. It gets basically spun into water. I don't know if it's a distillation process or something, but it's these insects end up getting added in an absolutely minute concentration to water, which then gets sprayed on all of the vines as an all-natural insecticide and a chemical-free way to dissuade these insects as pests. And straight away, it triggered me to remember a thing that I chatted to Dr. Charlie Huvenears about, which was a few episodes back. He was the shark expert, and we talked about how the chemicals released from decomposing shark carcasses can cause other sharks to leave the area. And it's almost like an alarm bell for a species to go, oh my goodness, I'm in a very dangerous place. I better not be here. And I love it as this natural, non-invasive way to erect a barrier between animals and a certain location. And whether it's insects or sharks, it feels like the same pattern to me, which I appreciated learning. Through my entire afternoon with him, Ben was just absolutely buzzing with energy and it matched the buzz of the land. And he has native bush on every patch that doesn't have vines on it. He does volunteer bush regeneration down the road. And he just had so much visible connection with the place. And as he drove me around, I realized that biodynamics 
demands this. It demands a 100% commitment to biodiversity and holistic ecosystem health that I think you could only achieve with an ear constantly to the ground. And I mean, when we were driving around to five different plots, I feel like Ben would have noticed a new drop of oil on the concrete of the shed at any one of them. He knew this land like the back of his hand and just had this level of intimacy with it. And I felt like you could feel that coming off the vines. And I'm very romantic about these things, but I reckon that's going to translate to to what you can taste in the finished product as well. So in conclusion, basically, guys, I was right. I was dead right. Biodynamic certification is definitely something to keep an eye out for as a consumer to signal the safe purchase of something genuinely positive for the environment. I just didn't realize how much fun it was too. <laughs> Seriously, like I had no idea about all of the other stuff and all of the preparations that go into biodynamics. And I'll tell you my favorite thing about my whole lesson in biodynamics at Paxton Wines was that Paxtons don't just do it because it's good for the land. They do it because it makes outrageously good wine. And I love this. I love it when sustainability is just the icing on the cake. Obviously, I'm an environmentalist and it's my first priority and everything. But I love when environmentally sound processes make an undeniably better product. As in like, okay, the only way to make the greatest wine is to save the planet. How good. Such a win. And the wine is gorgeous. Seriously, please order yourself some. My favorite was the Shiraz Grenache. Yes, that's another thing I learned. Everyone there was saying Shiraz, not Shiraz, like I did. So I learned that too. Um, and I did put a microphone on at the end to record us all chatting. So it was a little bit windy and there was a bit of awning slapping in the background. There's birds. The quality of the audio isn't fantastic, which is why I didn't just play it straight away. But if you can pour yourself a glass of wine and picture yourself sat around a barrel above a beautiful estate in the McLaren Vale, then you're going to enjoy the yarn. So I'd encourage you to do that. David Paxton, who founded Paxton Wines, his son Ben, who showed me around, one of their winemakers, Dwayne, and a fellow called Jack, who is a sustainability engineer, who just happened to be on site figuring out with Ben how to put solar panels in between the vines so that they can have a carbon neutral operation. How cool is that, guys? The day that I happened to turn up was the day that Paxton's are engaging a sustainability engineer to help them go carbon neutral. This business is the epitome of voting with your dollars. So, yep, go to the description in the episode as well to click through to those links, learn a bit more about biodynamics, and go to Paxton's and buy some bloody wine. And make the visit if you're in the McLaren Vale. The cellar door tasting is exquisite. I could not recommend it highly enough. So, enjoy the chat, guys. Thanks for learning with me, and I'll see you at the other end of it. Huh? Yeah. Um, cheers, gents. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Thank you very much for having me and for the tour. Pleasure. That was spectacular. David started in 79. Wow. Growing grapes and then Paxton wow. Wines, which is the wine company, started in 98. Six years. Okay. So in that time, have you guys noticed um, a, like increased variability of things like temperature and rainfall? And is it seasonally becoming more random than it used to be? Climate change, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, we pick a month earlier than we when I first started. Wow, really? A month. Anybody who denies climate change is just 
they sit in an office or they sit in their political office and make up stuff. We're actually standing out in the sun. Not make so much now, but I've stood out there for years, and it is it is very different. Right, and so mainly, um, like the season's getting brought forward. It's brought forward by month. By month, and how much of that would you expect naturally from seasonal shifts from like the Earth being off on a different axis? Isn't that a thing that like, I don't eventually... know? We've never seen it. Never. We, we, we have picked. Correct me here. We've picked in January. Yep. Um, and, and serious amounts, not just little pocketfuls. Um, and started picking. I'm talking about. We're, and we've always finished. Well, we've finished pretty well by Easter. Yeah, we finished by. Easter. We always, yeah, pretty much in the winery. We think the, the last grapes. You can almost, you know, book Easter will move. What does it move? Three. It can move up three to three weeks. Three, three weeks. weeks yeah, three yeah. or four weeks. It can move, but um, usually, you know, at, at the current rate, um, if it's an early Easter, it's going to be an early pick. And we're not uh, talking about religious Easter. This is. That's where biodynamics and religion may well <coughs> made up. Learn, it's a it's a lunar event, yeah. Easter. Yeah. Cycles. As yeah. everybody should yeah. know, if they mm. don't, mm. as well as a, uh, I think that was happening before. And all the God stuff came around. Yeah, I, I never forget when I, um, so I can't remember how I learned that about Christmas being abs- a, actually a subverted pagan um, celebration of the return of the sun after the winter solstice. And apparently that's on like the 22nd of December or something that it was the shortest day of the year, so three days after, and the pagans could observe the fact that the sun's starting to come back for longer, and they're like, oh, thank God the world's not, well, not thank God, thank whoever, yeah. but the world's yeah. not dying, and Christians came along and said, oh, you should actually thank God for that, and then turned it into Christmas. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's like, I don't know about the factual reliability of that, um, and it's very much just conjecture on my part, but it goes to show that there's like a lot of kind of, lunar basis and different um, origins to those oh, sort of celebrations. Massive. Yeah. Massive. I had no idea that lunar um, cycles were such a big principle of biodynamics. Mm. And it's, it's, uh, and there's the waxing the waning and full moon and new moon and all that stuff, but it's also the uh, ascending and descending is a huge part. Uh, as it draws closer to the Earth or uh, moves further away from the Earth, yeah, right. gravitational effects are different. I, I know. I feel like I notice that in myself, and like my most hippie mates will tell me that I definitely do, and I should rely on that. That like at a certain time in the lunar cycle, I feel like I'm more emotional or more my mood swings are greater or something. And then people are like, oh well, you know, your body's seventy percent water. You know, maybe you're just being sucked towards yeah. the moon or pushed away from it, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to like dismiss that as nonsense if you just don't buy into anything spiritual at all, or subscribe to it completely and just be like, "Oh yeah, my body is mainly water, and that yeah. must have an effect because I yeah. watch the tides down at my local beach and how big of a difference that is." Yeah, it's yeah like, so, absolutely. Like Ben, you said that um, that the moon dictates the flow of sap in the vines, or where the most activity is. Yeah. Uh, so at certain times, more activity will be in the top part of the vine, and at other 
times it's more the labor's still surface. And that's because moons and planets are pushing or pulling at a certain... Yep. Wow. Yeah. It has an influence over it. Right. Right, it's not like it's cut and dry as... No, no, it this doesn't is mean definitely that happening. there's nothing in the roots now, it's all in the top, it's, it's nothing like that. It's yeah. just there is a, a high concentration of activity in the top part yeah. or in the bottom part. Okay. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's insane. And it's something that like I would never have picked myself. I never would have like guessed that or asked that as a random question. Yeah. Same like the biodynamic stuff that you were just telling us about and you don't have to go into um, the intricate details of what's being produced in the 150-year-old shed down the road. Yeah. But, I mean, that stuff is like... Who's auditing that? Is that is that is there a list of things that a biodynamic certifier comes along and says, oh, have you made sure that you've, you know, no. dug your holes and put those certain things in there at the right time in the lunar calendar? No, or? and that, that's a bit of a weakness in the... Um, certification okay. I think it's it's really to be certified you don't have to do that much okay I think to be certified you have to apply 500 twice 501 and 501 501 is that only twice I, I thought it was a bit more yeah it's 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 not much uh, and and if you've written down that you've applied it then You've ticked that box. And no one's actually saying, show me where you've applied it, show me the receipts you, from where it came from. I, I, they, you have to show records. Yeah. Um, and we have records for every activity that's conducted in the vineyard, so that's what most people would. Yeah. Are you also restricted from doing certain things, like pesticides and whatever else? As well as what oh, yeah. you have to do. Oh, it, it has to be uh, organic inputs. Um, and you have to prove, prove that. So anything you use uh, has to be organic and approved. Um, we have the added issue of international certification and every country is different. Uh, so we had an issue with when we went for certification in the United States for our vineyards. One of the Australian organic um, uh, fertilizers, uh, uh, pelletized manure fertilizers, uh, organic here, not accepted in the state. So that delayed our certification for three years. So it's there's a lot of checking and double checking as we go along of anything we use, even down to the vineyard posts we use. Yeah, you were saying that you're allowed to use recycled pine, but uh, not, we, not we can, virgin pine. We can remove posts from the vineyard and replace them, but we can't bring new ones in, that's treated posts. So that, treated pine. Yeah, and yeah. We, don't, we don't want to use them anyway, anymore, now we know. How bad they are. Yeah, they're no good for the environment. Yeah. So do you yeah. mean, so when you say no good for the environment here or from where the, the plantation is? No, no, it's the um, it's the chemicals they're treated with. That Stuff leaches out, out. really? Yes. Copper chromate arsenate. Copper chromine. Ar copper chromate arsenate or arsenate? Arsenate as in like arsenic. Arsenic, arsenic. it's arsenate. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's arsenic. Yeah. Mm. And wow. if you burn it, well, it can make you very ill if it doesn't. Yeah, it does smell very nice. There's piles upon piles of these posts. Which can't uh, be like, got And you rid can't of. really get rid of them. So, to give you a real example, giant bushfires that spread through Victoria. Uh, almost 10 years ago now. Mm. Um, one of the big problems is they ended up with a 
chemical contamination problem from wherever these posts were because they all burnt and left this soil just destroyed. Really? Yeah, and, right. they and they have to go out and take it out and put it into tips. And Is this the yeah, same treated pine it? that you can just get from the hardware? Yeah. Any, anything with CCA yeah. treatment, which is what we colloquially call treated. Any of those grains, thanks, slapers, anything yeah. like that. Sadly, if you look there, that, you know, structural stuff. This, this was oh, yeah. all done before we um, became involved. But we don't use anything. A lot of the structural timber now is CCA treated. Just this chromate it's everywhere. shit. And what does it do? Is it is it designed to um, to kind of slow down deterioration in structural yes. wood? White, white ant resistant. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so, would most of the farms in Australia have treated pine somewhere on their properties? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm. Most most houses, not just farms. You know, in the gardens or somewhere. But vineyards. Public I don't know what it would be. be well over ninety percent of vineyard posts would be treated. Wow. It's only probably what the last ten years that they've started getting steel steel and so on. Probably yeah. the last ten years yeah. but every vineyard that was planted before that. But it's pretty much David was yeah. before his time because he the vineyard with the old Shiraz, he he did the whole property with um, hardwood, Jarrapos. Ah yeah. forward thinking. Uh, well, excuse me. Yeah. They, they ran out a, of treated pine. A, <laughs> a, well, yeah, you couldn't get it. It was, you know, one of those uh, housing plants. And uh, these guys from Western Australia, they had all this Jarrah. Now, of course, it's like diamond oh, yeah. and gold. Um, and, uh, yeah, I thought, how good's this? A couple of the people down the road who had glass houses said don't put that in boy they rot off at the ground Ow! I said that's bullshit that'll be fine they'll rot it off at the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we've got piles of them <laughs> however we don't throw them away you can make tables or floors or something out of it mm. and so if it leaches out of those posts aside from poisoning soil and, and poisoning your crop what would that taste like uh, if you made wine from those grapes, yeah, I, Do you take, I, like, I've, I've not heard of, of actual taint. They've talked about it, but I, I don't know whether it's like, whether it's a thing. I don't think it's a high enough concentration that that you would pick it up in wine you know, as taste. It's just that biodynamics and organics really uh, don't like mm. anything to do with those treated pastes. Now there are some winemakers who don't and I, I think you'll see over the next 10 years, not even 20 years, that they'll, 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 they'll start going away. Yeah. So the other treated post is um, creosote, which is a derivative of oil. LOSP yeah. mm. as well, seen those? Um, uh, selling them in and life now as an alternative to CCA. I don't know much about it, but potential. Uh, it's supposed yeah. to be less destructive. Oh, that's nasty. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. It, it probably still would have fit with uh, organics or biodynamics. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought. Will you go to steel? We are. Yeah, well, you, you saw the steel mm. post. Everything we do is with out, steel. Out, out here, we've put in some posts to hold a drip line. That's all steel. 
because they're a lot more expensive than they're they're expensive but they're cheaper to install oh, okay and then they won't need replacing like a, a piece of rotting wood mine break <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah although the older ones that we used that didn't last terribly long so mm. where you're mixing irrigation um, mechanical harvesting mechanical soil manipulation you know, you're smashing and breaking and everything on a regular basis mm. so that sort of sounds like a good example of something that you guys are doing outlaying almost an additional expense that you could get away with not not spending if you didn't care as much about your wine and if you just wanted to turn a dollar from the final product there must be you a lot wouldn't of get certification for any new replantings if you so the certification is use. pretty pivotal for you guys to be able to it's everything absolutely. absolutely yeah it's it's taken a, a lot to get certification get better at doing it doing what we do uh we're not going to lose it on something where there's an alternative that would work just as well it's Okay. It's not really a consideration. Okay. I have a really, you might hate me for asking this question, um, but I, I'm interested to know what the other end of the scale is. Like, how do you make goon compared to what vineyards that you've just shown me? Not, not in McLaren Vale for a start. Okay. Um, McLaren Vale is reasonably expensive. Yeah. Um, uh, real estate and water. That water everywhere is getting expensive, but you need to be able to produce bigger tons than we can produce okay. here per hectare of vines. Yeah, and so you need to care less about the inputs to be able to do that if you're just caring uh, about quantity. There, there are organic producers, say in the Riverland, that still get big tons uh, of probably better quality than their neighbours, but not such big tons. Yeah. yeah, to make a silver pillow, you mean? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Is that the stuff of your guys' nightmares about cask wine? It's a different market. It's yeah. nothing. It, it's part it's of it's part of the Australian wine industry landscape. Right. Um, but it's they they're not competing with us. Um, we're competing uh, with the the, the the goon producers. Uh, there's there's about six of them in the Australian wine industry. We just compete with the other 900, two and a half thousand, however many of them there are. Wineries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and we're competing in the top 10% of wine in yeah. the country with the rest of the world. The small producers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, the, the cheap wine is not competition for us. Yeah, sure. I know that was a silly question, but I just kind of wanted to know what the reaction would be to that. Can I ask a follow-up one? Do you think it has a big influence on the flavour profile? If you took that wine and put it in a, a, a cask? That's a good question a instead of a bottle. Yeah. So, um, I'm pretty sure it's it's supposedly inert, you know, and we, we are doing another thing that we do um, that a lot of pubs and stuff have been doing is basically with our wine yep. we do 20 litre kegs that they're actually because you know instead of going through so much glass and yep. um, you know if you've got a small restaurant or bar or something 
they find it easier, fully recyclable and stuff. So, um, yeah, right. so it it um, it holds the same. It's not going to age. It, it'll age quicker, of course, than once you open it. But um, but it's more it's more really a um, thing like the consumers think yeah. about. Yeah, marketing yeah. perception. But they are a bag in the box. But we literally, you know, I've transferred, you know, sometimes when big companies ship over, they ship in a bladder over to um, the UK or whatever and bottle it over there. Mm. So they'll send 28,000 litres in a basic, you know, goon bladder in a container and um, bottle it. Yeah, because mm. it's cheaper and easier over there. Wow. I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, so the biggest difference probably is um, it's the... It's a life, mm. lifespan in glass. Mm. It won't change much. Yeah. Okay. In a in a right. in a goon bag, um, there there is air. Doesn't matter what yeah. they do. And there's air ingress through a screw cap as well. Um, and some guys are sort of experimenting with how much, um, like adjusting, adjusting sort of how much oxygen will, will go through, you know, a sealed bottle because you want. You want a little bit to go through to sort of help it age and stuff. And, um, so you know, whereas cork, cork fluctuations is just insane. Yeah, right. Bottle to bottle, whereas screw cap very consistent. So you know, you pretty much know what you're getting when yeah. you bottle it. Wow, there's so many like micro, crazy, complicated details of making wine. But like for someone like me who's walking in off the street to an operation like this knowing absolutely nothing about it. It's like you guys need, like it, it, I think of trying to start an operation like this now from scratch and it just feels impossible to me. There's so much love that's got into it. I don't think it matters what you look at. Hmm. You go and look at a potato grinder. Yeah. And packaging place, you'd be amazed. Yeah, and you get <laughs> the Technology they using, yeah, exactly. You know, everything looks impossible if you're not in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah. So have you guys got a favourite wine that you've ever produced? Is there a particular vintage? Because like most... Which one do you like the best? Oh, we're not there yet. <laughs> no, but like, you know, most connoisseurs and stuff, like my uncle and my old man and stuff, they've, they've like drunk wine for long enough that they can go like, oh, remember that oh, 77 something that we drank at this time in the 90s or whatever. It's like, have you guys got specific vintages from here no, I they're all amazing is that the we answer? do look at I, we do look at back vintages now because to see what they what they um look like you know we try the old, like older triple a's over 10 years old you know we've got museum stock we'll, we'll taste things through and sometimes show customers and stuff older stuff because the wine's always changing mm. you know, over time um so we're about to embark on a 20-year vertical tasting of all our Jones Block Shiraz. So from 2000 was the first release. 98 vintage. Uh, 98 vintage. Yeah. So. Yeah, but 2000. You're right. Yeah, but it was released in 2000. Right, and so taste them one by one, sort of thing. Yeah, from mm. back then, yeah. all the way through, and then um, because it's been 20 years, yeah. So we'll taste each um, each year, and you know. Um, get some people to come in and taste with us. And yeah, I was going to say, is that just a thing that you guys do amongst yourselves, or would you open that up to the public? Uh, for the 20 years, we're, we're going to invite some people. So mm. all the past winemakers, 
called Ask Me to Culturalist. That sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it should be a bit of fun. Yeah, if a few people turn up, because if you open 20 bottles of wine for a crew of six of us or eight of us, it's. Just disappear. I would give it a go. (laughs) 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 And is that is that part celebration and memory lane walk and part um, almost which ones did we get really right and reflect on that was well made and we'll do that again. It's a great way to you know you like doing something like that. You taste every year and I'll write notes about you know the wine. you know, this combination of the vintage and um, what happened in the winery and so on. Um, you know, when you do something like that, you just keep as much, you know, because you don't get to do it that often. Yeah. You know, we don't have that many bottles of 90, 98. Um, I've got to go try some 16. I can imagine your notes. I, mean, I haven't got a bottle. Really? Oh, yeah. It's starting yeah. to get a bit messy. Ah, uh, no. I mean, the other day I tasted, I was telling the guys this morning, I think we had, what was it, 60? 67 individual barrels that like you'd taste blind wow. to pick the best 23. Yeah, so the winemaker's fine. It's just the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the rest of about, us. About 20, 20, 20 wines is plenty for me to taste. So I, yeah, they tend to spit it out, whereas... Yeah, we, yeah, how we, often we, do you guys accidentally get side, The farming <laughs> side of the operation. Oh, oh, <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> no. That that must happen on a daily basis. Like coming from a coffee background, there's been plenty of tastings that I've come away and I've had my heart leaping out of my chest because I'm just like, fuck, 13 espressos is too many. Yeah. But like, it's kind of less fun than alcohol, I think, maybe. But probably. I would have thought so. Probably slightly more productive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could actually work afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sweet. So do you guys sell grapes to other wineries as well, or is it all just in-house? Yeah, we sell sell grapes as well. And about, about half. Okay. Oh, that's quite a... Is that, that's, is that comfortable for you guys to have that as a um, potential expansion well, avenue to be able to... It just depends who you talk to. It could either be very uncomfortable because we should be turning into wine and selling it. Or, oh, I see. Or comfortable because we we can grow into it yeah, right. as required. Is there a strengthening interest in biodynamics in general? I think so. Um, the, we're seeing it particularly uh, internationally, uh, organic in particular, uh, is, is being sought after uh, in Europe mm-hmm. especially. Uh, seems to be growing in the US. Australia seems to be a more immature organic market. There's the interest, um, but there's not the understanding it's getting there, and the education about organics and biodynamics um, can be equated to quality, whereas there, I think there's an overhang in Australia at least, probably from the 80s and 90s of idealistic organic winemakers who didn't really know how to make wine, but they wanted to do it naturally Mm. Um, but now with the clean green movement um, people are choosing to eat and drink organic and biodynamic uh, and realizing the the benefits of flavor and that sort of thing and quality uh, over and above any of the idealistic ideas of 
being organic. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I think the, the the growth is is there. Uh, um, I think we are actually seeing it now, but it, it's a fairly recent thing. Mm. Especially at the, at the high quality level, you know, um, when I was going through uni in sort of 2008, you know, we talked about organic wines, but it's, you know, the stuff that you taste, you know, um, like I said, people making natural wine or, you know, the wine was clearly um, in superior, like worse than yeah, conventional, yeah. like because, oh, well, we can't use, you know, this and that and so on. Whereas now, I think that actually it's gone like to the other way where um, you can make some amazing wines and people are now looking for that and actually almost willing to, you know, spend to get quality plus make themselves feel good, you know, organics and biodynamics. Yeah, I understand. So it's, it's changed a lot. Like early on, it was just such a negative connotation, I thought, with quality yeah, organic right. wine. And so it's just taken my pioneers like you guys to figure out how to avoid that and how to actually improve the quality rather than let it suffer just because mm. you're not spraying things and yeah I, and saying pioneers working it out it's it's people who are doing it commercially seriously and uh, as David says biodynamics is not an excuse for bad viticulture or bad wine uh, yeah or wine mate sure there's rules but all about we use we use biodynamics as one of our management tools to produce the best grapes and wine that we can that's that's all it is it's one of the tools it doesn't doesn't mean it's got a funny flavor so it's organic that's an excuse it's it's got to taste better than the so this one at 25 dollars needs to taste better than the next one at 25 dollars regardless of whether it's organic or not. Yeah, I Would you say then, because you're, say, selling maybe half of the grapes that you produce, and you guys obviously care about the grapes you're producing, you'd be enabling that biodynamic wine industry to flourish? Because you're giving people who maybe don't have their own grape growing access to winemaking. Yeah, there's not that many people that want, it's growing. Okay. Uh, biodynamic fruit most people want high quality fruit mm. so you, you sell doesn't matter if it's certified or not yeah, yeah. so you're mostly selling to people who aren't too interested in the yeah yeah okay yeah the the interest from people getting organic or biodynamic is is growing yeah um but still the mainstay is quality yeah alone they don't care whether it's biodynamic or not they they want that fruit because it's some of the best fruit in the district that's yeah. That's all. Mm. A lot of the wine would, yeah, not be, they'll then, put, you know, use it and they're not certified. If the winery's not certified, yeah. then they can't put biodynamic or organic, or they might not just be interested. Yeah. Mm, it's just all quality. There are a couple that are doing. Yeah, and no, I There's think we're getting more demand from established organic brands. Oh, okay. As their market increases, they need certified fruit. They need more well, grapes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. How many of those do you get through? Lots. Lots? Too many. Are they interested in your fruit? They're interested yeah. in anything that's green when it's dry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny though, they lead to whole... They lead to shoots off a grapevine and leave one, the ones either side of it. I don't know. 
Well, you noticed that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're on the cordon. Yeah, yeah. And they're all along, they'll eat all the buds off one and then leave and then they they side. Yeah. Weird. Extraordinary. <laughs> hmm. Um, one question I did have is about the no hangover thing because I don't know if I'm just telling myself that when I drink organic wine that I feel better the next day. Do but want, is that like a verified do you want my, thing? Do you want, um, <laughs> don't be honest. <laughs> do you want me to be? <laughs> um, the answer is yes. A lot of people think that... Um, yeah, a lot of people think that they're allergic to sulphur and there are some people that are allergic to sulphur. Um, and if you're allergic to sulfur, it's going to be in your nose. It's almost, you know, like a sort of an asthmatic. You can you can drink some wine. If it's got high sulfur. Um, it's, you'll feel it. Like you'll feel it instantly. Things will close. Yes. So it's um, uh, as you know that it's like so a recreational diagnosis thing, is what you're saying. Whereas um, the alcohol is always the thing that gives you the hangover. Right. And that's. That's what a um, no that's what no a um, pharmacist told uh, you know. At, we had a guy at uni who was talking about all the things, and he said it's it's just it's alcohol that um, for most people, but some people second bottle. It's the second yeah. bottle. I'm, I'm, I'm sure sulfur probably enhances your hangovers. Might and close you up a bit more if you drink a goon mm. to the same quantity that most of us drink this sort of stuff. Yeah you probably feel a lot worse the next day. Yeah, so what is it in that? Is that uh, preservatives or is it just the greasy food you probably ate uh, with it? I reckon it's high, high levels of sulfur and, and most, most wines double, you can't you know, tell. Right. Some of the wines. Till the be, next day. Yeah. What, so what's the sulfur input doing for? Is it just stabilizing it's it a in preservative, that preservative. Oh, okay. There's yeah. a lot of sugar in some of those, a lot of, lot of sugar in some of those wines. Yeah. Okay. That shouldn't give you no, no, but the salt is there to stop it from mixing. Yeah, yeah, to manage it. Yeah, so it's depending on the market, it would be 150 parts per million up to 200 parts per million for if, you, if you're not organic or biodynamic. It's the, the limit's quite high in terms of um, legal limit for sulfur. Right. Whereas, you know, most of our wines are 60, okay. 50. And then we've got our preservative free wines, which Zero. There's nothing in there. No sulfur. Okay. We have a lot of customers that claim they don't get hangovers. Yeah, because I don't get to tell them. Our wines. You, uh, you know, you don't yeah. want to. You don't want to. You don't say to customers, "Just taking two dozen." No, you're a bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, you, you don't say. So, how much did you drink? Oh well, I had. Oh, we shared half a bottle. And then I and then we opened another bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so. You're an adult. You have a functioning liver. That's, that's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not invested either way. Like, it's, just, it's an interesting, interesting question, isn't it? Well, there's so much of that. Because everyone who's tried doing knows how bad you feel. Yeah, so, but yeah. I don't know how much of that is the guilt of holding a silver <laughs> nah, pillow above your head nah, and just feeling ashamed. And it's both. If you're doing the clothesline thing, it's yeah. definitely quantity yeah. and sulfur, I would suggest. So, yeah. But also drinking different types of alcohol some nights, you know, I feel like... Mixing it up. Mm. Yeah, I think that there's definitely, you know, something to that in terms of... The next day you'll feel way worse, or you'll get way drunker. Well, or you think half a dozen beers and a couple of bottles of red. Yeah, and then get on the no, scotch. And then, yeah, then you decide spirits are the go. And then you drink tequila. It's definitely the spirits that do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> then you get on the tequila. Well, then. Mm. So this is sulfur free. This mm. one. Yeah. And so, what are the, are the downsides to that? Does it not keep as long? Or. Um, 
Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much basic. Um, but you've got to be super careful because think of it like um, grape juice or, you know, if you just pick, it's going to oxidise yeah. a lot quicker. Um, so you have to be, you know, a bit of sulphur in there will keep things um, fresh. You just have to be careful and limit the amount of oxygen that um, impacts the wine from start to end. Yeah. Bottle it early, capture it as clean and fresh as possible. Um, white, reds, reds are a bit different because they could, they'd like oxygen while you're making it and they'll sort of have their own sort of protection, whereas whites, there's pretty much nowhere to hide. Okay. So if you, you know, it, it's like if you have a bottle of white and you've drunk half it and you've left it in the fridge for five days and then taste that, it's going to change quite yeah. dramatically, you know. So, so and that that whole process can happen very quickly. So you're just going to be. So super, we can get less hangovers by drinking more wine and quickly. Yeah. Mm. So we're saying. Yeah. I like that. That's yeah. a really important that's, thing to that's learn. That's an excellent. Yeah. Thing to <laughs> okay. So these now wines, Sorry, um, with no added sulphur. Great. Uh, they change in the glass much more quickly and in the yeah, bottle, okay. so uh, you can drink them the next day and the red's fine the next day, but it changes a lot faster than, yeah. say, the wines with sulphur in them. Right. Uh, so generally we won't taste any of them the next day in cellar door because people taste it. It might be drinkable, but it's changed a lot. They really like that and then they take it home and open it. It's totally different to what they taste. Right. Yeah. They know agree overnight, so we'll leave things overnight, and that's about it. And then staff will take it or whatever we drink it um, for the wines with sulphur in them. But the preservative-free ones, yep. uh, the uh, it's, it's almost like false advertising. Yeah. Do you communicate that to people who are interested? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, it's just. You, you have to about these wines. Don't leave it in the fridge for three days with half a bottle in it. You could sell it. You could be like, you're getting two wines in one. You well, should open it and yeah. leave it in your fridge yeah, for three it's days. Also, <laughs> you get a totally different wine. After four days, it might taste like shit. Would you guys, excuse me. So what do you reckon, guys? Are you going to go out and get your fruity Lexia goon sack to hang on the hill's hoist? Or are you going to think, actually, maybe I could... I don't know, not buy as many clothes and put a bit of that money towards better wine. Wine that is extremely good for the planet. I hope you've learned a bit about biodynamics and enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you again to Paxton's, Ben, for showing me around so much and giving me so much of your time. I really appreciated the experience and I cannot wait to come and visit again. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I will see you legends at the next episode. Peace.